Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 23rd, 2021, and I am so grateful to every one of you for being here tonight. What a great privilege it is for me to be able to study with you tonight. I'm looking forward to this. This is the highlight of my week, and I'm grateful. Thank you for joining. Last Thursday night, I mentioned the tragic death of Liel Namdar, and I told the moving story her father told at her funeral. Liel was a 15-year-old girl, and she was killed in a traffic accident. She was returning from New York after spending Shabbos with a group of girls her age who she would friendly with that she had been at camp together with in the summer, summer camp together. And they were driving home and tragically their car was hit by a drunk driver and several were injured and she, Nebuch, lost her life. This week, I heard two stories from Sivan Rahav Meir, whose daughter is a friend of Liel's. And these two stories both come from the last moments of Liel's life. So it was just as Shabbos ended and this event was ending and People were getting ready to go home, and she was getting ready, gathering to get into the car to go home. And it started to rain. And all the other girls went back inside, or they covered themselves up quickly with, with raincoats to get to the car. But Liel pulled two friends outside, and she said to them, Let's dance! Let's dance in the rain! And this is the last video that she posted of the three of them dancing in the rain, joyful as she always was in life, making the most of the moment. That was the last video she made. The last text that she sent, just seconds before she lost her life. Of course, she was 15 years old. She wasn't driving. She was a passenger. And she sent a text seconds before her life ended, before the crash. And she sent this text to a friend. And the text reads, Could you remind me to say Shema Yisrael this evening before I go to sleep? That was the text. Now later, her friends said that Liel always said the Shema before she went to sleep. She didn't need a reminder from her friend, but the reason she sent the text is that this was her way of reminding her friend to say Shema Yisrael before she went to sleep, but in a way that would not demean her 
in a way that would be sensitive. So she made it appear as if she needed the reminder, but in fact, she was reminding someone else. What a beautiful and sensitive soul the Jewish people lost with Liel's passing. May her memory be a blessing to her friends, to her family, and to the entire Jewish people who she is inspired. Allow me to share with you tonight four pieces on this week's Parsha. <clears throat> there is a very special verse in our Parsha. Now, before I quote this to you, let me just explain a term. There is an object, much more common in former times, called a Kamiya. Kamiya means an amulet. And it's an object that would usually have something written placed inside it and often worn as a necklace. You may get where the current uh, versions of this, but in, in former times, especially ancient times, a Kamiya, it was an amulet. And there would be words or a prayer inside that was intended to protect the wearer, to uh, provide uh, security or some kind of assistance to the one who was wearing it. So it was a pretty common thing. It's not very common today, but that's what a kamiya is. There is a classic commentator on the Torah known by the name of his work, Pardes Yosef. And the Pardes Yosef says about the verse in our Parsha that I'm going to quote to you in a moment. He writes as follows. Pasuk Zeh, this Pasuk, this verse that I'm going to tell you in a moment. Hu ha ha This is the proven amulet that provides Shmira Tova, Migdal Oz, Umivtsar Miskav, it provides good protection and tremendous strength and great flourishing, Leruchnias Hauma, for the spiritual state of the nation of Israel, Vikiyuma. Begolus, and allows for, facilitates our flourishing, thriving throughout the vicissitudes of exile. A single verse that contains so much wisdom and so much assistance in navigating life. The beginning of our Parsha, Shemos, the beginning of the second book of the Torah, the book of Shemos, Exodus. We begin with the Jewish people being persecuted by the Egyptians. And the Pasuk says, V'cha'asher ya'nu oso, and as the Egyptians persecuted us, Kain yirbe v'chein yifrotz, thus did we increase and thus did we flourish? 
In other words, this verse, which the Pardes Yosef is telling us, is the proven secret of not only surviving, but flourishing throughout our history. The verse that indicates this is this Pasuk. The Jewish people faced challenge, persecution, torture, slavery, beatings. But the effect of the persecution was counterintuitive because the persecution of the Egyptians was intended to make this people smaller and weaker. And we might expect that that would be the outcome. They were hounded. They were persecuted. They were beaten. But the actual effect was just the opposite. Kein yirbe v'chein yifrotz. But listen to that first word, v'cha'asher, which means literally just as. In other words, the verse is telling us that the direct result of the persecution was the growth, was the flourishing. Just the opposite of what the Egyptians intended and we might have expected from that terrible experience. Let me show you this in an amazing way based on the writing of the Ramban, Nachmanides, concerning what we'll learn about a little bit later in the Torah, after the Jewish people leave Egypt, there's a census, a counting of the Jewish people. And the purpose of the counting, according to the simple meaning of the verses, is to count how many soldiers were available to form an army as they traveled from Egypt to Israel. So they counted the number of men from 20 years old to 60 years old. And they counted each tribe. Now, the average size of the tribes was about 50,000. Again, men between the ages of 20 and 60, the average of the 12 tribes was about 50,000. Now, you would expect that the size of the tribes would be roughly close in number because they all started for the same 12 sons of Yaakov, of Yaakov. So presumably they start from the same individual. It's the same amount of time. Presumably they should be similar in number. But when you look at the census, you see something amazing. Reuven, the firstborn, the number of his tribe was a little bit over 46,000. Okay. Shimon, second son, a little over 59,000. Okay. So if the average is 50, one's a little lower, one's a little larger. The largest tribe was Yehuda, a little bit more than 74,000. Okay. What about Levi, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and then Yehuda? What about Levi? <clears throat> Levi was counted differently. Of course, if you're going to compare statistics, you got to compare apples to apples. Levi was counted differently. The other tribes were counted 
men between the age of 20 years old and 60 years old. Levi, the tribe of Levi, was counted from the age of 30 days old to 60 years old. So the, the, the counting for the tribe of Levi and only Levi was a different scope, a wider proportion of the entire tribe was counted. The tribe of Levi comprised 22,000 people. How is that possible? How is it possible that if the average is 50, some were a little bit lower, some were a little bit larger, and Levi were, were counting more of them, a, a, a larger a larger portion, a larger segment of the tribe, and they're less than half of the average? How is that possible? Our rabbis in the Medrash Tanchuma give a startling answer. They say that the Jewish people in Egypt suffered brutal manual labor. But Shivto shall Levi, but the tribe of Levi, Panui Haya Meavodas Perach, they were freed, they were exempted from the brutal manual labor. And the reason the tribe of Levi was exempted is because the tribe of Levi is the tribe from which came the priests, Kohen and, and Levi come from the tribe of Levi, the priests. And that's based on a verse that we learned earlier in the book of Bereshus, when the Torah was talking about how Yosef had arranged that because of the famine, everyone had to sell their land and sell themselves to Paro in exchange for food to stay alive. Rak admas hakoanim lokana except for the land of the priests. That was exempted. Tax-exempt status. Kichok l'kohanim me'ez paro. That was a rule from paro about all priests. Jewish priests, non-Jewish priests, pagan priests, any kind of priest. If you were a priest, you were exempt. The consequence is that hundreds of years later, Hundreds of years later, the tribe of Levi was exempt from this crushing labor. And therefore, says the Ramban, they weren't pushed. They weren't challenged like the other tribes were challenged. So they didn't have to try as hard. They were more complacent and they remained smaller, much smaller, than every other tribe. Now, this verse, Kasher Yanu Oso Ken Yir Yifrots, as, just as they persecuted them, so too did they increase and flourish. This verse is not just the blessing that comes from challenge. It's not just a description of what happened. We see in the numbers how 
it literally came true. But the Talmud points out something else about this verse. It is written in the future tense. Yirbe will increase. Yifrotz will flourish in the future. And the Talmud says, Ruach HaKodesh Mavas Rasan. This is God speaking prophetically to what will happen to the Jewish people in the future. This is built into our character, helping us to navigate life in every generation, including ours. That's the blessing. That's the promise that comes from this verse. You may remember a few years ago, there was a dramatic scene that unfolded in New York. A plane took off from LaGuardia Airport and almost immediately suffered almost complete engine failure. And the plane was not able to make it to any airport safely, but instead managed to land on the Hudson River. And when that happened, the plane stayed afloat long enough for every single passenger to be safely rescued. It was an incredible, incredible event. I remember watching television, either it was that day or the next day, and there was a psychiatrist that was being interviewed on a news show. And this psychiatrist was talking about the trauma that these passengers and crew had gone through. I mean, it's, it's, it, it boggles the mind even to think of it. Here's what the psychiatrist said. He said, every single one of those passengers and crew, they all suffered traumatic stress, thinking that their lives may very well end. Some of them will develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Some will do better. They'll be okay. If, and here's what differentiates, according to this psychiatrist on TV, if they are proud of how they acted, if they helped others get through it to safety, they will feel, if they will feel better about themselves having undergone this trauma, they will think better about themselves afterwards. Even better than they felt before this happened. Amanda Gorman is an incredible poet I have quoted before. And she wrote, Our scars are the brightest parts of us. No one wants challenges. 
No one wants difficulties. No one wants crises. No one wants trauma. But our Pasuk teaches that if we can just train ourselves not to ask why, we're entitled to ask why. God, why? Why me? Why is this happening? We're entitled to ask that. But we're not going to get an answer to that question. That question is not going to help us in any way. It's much more helpful if we train ourselves to ask what do I learn from this? How do I grow from this? How do I use this? What muscles must I develop by pushing against this resistance? Keep in mind, the challenge for the Jews in Egypt was numbers. The persecution of the Egyptians was intended to limit their numbers. The Torah says this explicitly. Paro says to his people, Pen yirbe, we have to persecute and enslave the Jews lest they become numerous. That's what Paro was worried about. Paro was worried, Pen yirbe, perhaps they will become numerous. And so he persecuted them, and the Jewish people responded, Cain Yirbe, thus did they grow. And this applies in every area of life. Imagine being on a plane and hearing the words from the pilot, brace yourselves from impact. Imagine reading in the business section of the newspaper that your savings have been wiped out. Imagine a doctor approaching you to tell you what is wrong with your child. It's natural to ask why. Why me? Why God? We're entitled to ask that. We're entitled to be angry. But it's not going to make us any better. The question we need to train ourselves to ask is, how can I be a hero in this situation? How can I use this to become stronger by helping others, by staying calm, by not panicking, by reordering priorities. If we are able to do that, then everything that happens to us makes us better. We wouldn't choose it. We don't want it. We certainly don't understand it. But we shouldn't let it go to waste.
Henry Ellis, the British scholar, wrote, the promised land is always on the other side of a wilderness. Let me share this with you in a slightly different manner, not slightly, in a very different manner, a very spiritual expression of this. And what I want to share with you now comes from the Magid of Kuznets, one of the great Hasidic masters who passed away in the year 1814. Now, he uses the analogy of a husband and wife, and he uses this analogy in terms that we might view as old-fashioned or outdated, but I ask you, please, listen to what he does with this analogy. <clears throat> he writes, There are times when a woman has no desire to adorn herself and unite with her beloved, her husband. And yet, because of her profound understanding of her husband and her deep longing to bring him happiness, she dresses herself up and smiles at him to the extent that it seems to him as if she is beckoning him. Her true intention in this is not for herself, but rather to gladden the heart of her husband. In these moments, she feels awful and upset on account of whatever the external difficulty or frustrating event is that she's going through. If only her husband understood the entirety of what lies within her heart and the greatness of the love that is within her, demonstrated in concealing her anguish and resolving to bring happiness to her husband. If he would realize this, certainly his love for her would be increased a thousand times. And if it were within his power to put all right and sweep away her suffering and the worries of her soul, in an instant, her husband would do all that he could. Now, please listen carefully. The same dynamic holds true with the Jewish people and her beloved, God. If the Jewish people or a Jewish person, any one of us suffers for any reason or is afflicted by some evil decree, she nonetheless, we Nonetheless, gather our strength and adorn ourselves doing what her husband, God, asks of her by rejoicing with him on Shabbos and Yom Tov and during the time of prayer or the performance of a mitzvah, even if things are difficult for us. Even if things are bitter for us, we still try to observe God's commandments, to come close to God through prayer to reach out to God. And we don't do it because we feel like doing it at that moment. We do it because we want to give pleasure to our beloved when the Holy One, blessed is He, who knows and understands all thoughts, sees that we have turned aside from the sorrows in our heart to serve God. 
His love burns within him like the pillars of fire because he understands the embitterment of our soul. V'chasher yanu oso and just as the Egyptians afflicted us, persecuted us, came in exactly direct consequence. Yirbe, we increased. V'chein yifrotz, and we flourished in our closeness to God, especially now, especially when some things may be dark for us. What it means for us to serve God now is on a completely different level. A husband said to his wife about these times that we're going through, I am sorry we have to raise children in these difficult times. And she said to him, Never feel sorry for raising dragon slayers in a time where there are actual dragons. We are dragon slayers and we are raising dragon slayers in this time. When we are confronted by challenge and darkness and frustration, use it. Conquer it. Let it make your strength increase. Let it be your Kamiya Mumcha, your proven amulet. The next piece I want to share with you is based on an insight, partially based on an insight by Sivan Rahav Meir. So the Torah tells us very little about Moshe before he is chosen to leave the Jewish people. And especially for that reason, each detail, especially at the beginning of our Torah portion, is meant to convey deep lessons about leadership that Moshe either intuited or learned. So here is a very subtle lesson. It's something that's easy to miss until we focus on it. And that is that there is a grammatical problem in a Pusik in this week's Parsha. So Moshe grows up, he has to run away, he goes from Egypt to a place called Midian. And when he gets to this place called Midian, he goes to the well, because the well is where people gather. That's where you learn about a place, that's where you meet people, at the well. He meets there the daughters of Yisro, who was the priest of Midian, 
and the daughters of Yisro were shepherds, and they brought their flocks of sheep, lahashkos tzon avihen, to water the sheep of their father. Vayavo haroim, and other shepherds came along, vaygarshum, and they pushed them away. They refused to allow them access to their water. A terrible act, especially in a society where water is the necessity to push someone away and not let them get to the water. Vayakam Moshe Vayoshi Un. And Moshe arose and he saved them. He came to their aid. He came to their rescue. Vayashk Es Tsonam. And he watered their sheep. He gave their sheep water to drink. <clears throat> so I just want to confess to you that um, among the many things that I do not know much about is biblical grammar. I'm very weak on the subject of biblical grammar. I'm not so bad on English grammar, but biblical Hebrew grammar I'm just not so good on. And I will confess to you that I have read this verse, I mean, I don't know how many dozens of times over the years, and until Sivan Rahab Meir pointed this out, I never noticed this. So, but there's a problem with the grammar. So, you know that in Hebrew, words can be either masculine or feminine. The daughters of Yisro came, lahashkos tzon avihen, with an N, nun, at the end, to give water to the sheep of their father. Their father is in the feminine because they are the daughters, so Avihen is the, the daughter's father, feminine. The shepherds come, push them away. Vayaka Moshe, Moshe arises, Vayoshi Un. It ends with a nun, an N sound. Moshe saves them, but them referring to feminine plural, female plural. Vayashk. And then Moshe gives water to drink, es tsonam, with a mem at the end. Hold on a minute. It should have said tsonan, with a nun at the end. He's watering the sheep of these women. So just like the father of the women is in the feminine form, and saving the women is in the feminine form, the sheep of the women should also be in the feminine form. But that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says, Tsonam, which means the sheep of the women and the men. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. If, if Moshe is coming to save the women... And then Moshe is going to give water to the sheep of the women. Why does the Torah say that Moshe gave water to the sheep of the women and the men? The men were the aggressors. The men were the one from whom Moshe saved them. So Ibn Ezra 
the early medieval scholar who is the master of biblical grammar. He gives a technical answer, and I don't even understand the answer. Okay. Rabbi Samuel Farl-Hirsch gives a different answer, and there are other answers that are given to this question, but listen to what Sivan Rahav Meir says. The simple meaning of the verse is very clear. Women who were shepherds of their father's flock, Tzon Avihen, in the feminine. Moshe saved the women, Vayoshi Un, feminine form. And then Moshe watered the flocks of the women and of the other men who were the aggressors. So numb. But why would he do that? Because if Moshe had simply chased away the bullies, they would have returned the next day and continued to bother the daughters of Yisro. Moshe watered everyone's flocks so that there was no reason for these men to act aggressively against these women in the future. And in fact, these women were not bothered anymore by these men. And the message, the lesson here is that when we encounter a difficult problem, we don't solve it by just looking for the quick solution, but by looking at what the deeper issue is that is involved. We have to think not only about how to solve the problem today, but how to make sure that it doesn't recur tomorrow. Very often, a problem is too immediate and urgent to look beyond a Band-Aid approach. You need a Band-Aid. But a sign of greatness in leadership, and we see this here in Moshe, is when confronted by a crisis to provide the short-term Band-Aid and provide the long-term underlying solution. And this is applicable to every one of us in every area of life. <clears throat> Mark Twain is reputed to have said, history does not always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That's why these lessons in leadership we learn from Moshe, starting in our parsha of Shemos, are so important for us to study and internalize because they're not only a record of our past, but they're a blueprint now as we navigate life today. So here's another crucial factor of leadership that we find in Moshe that 
Moshe is able to demonstrate for us. And it's something that is in very, very short supply today. It is a crucial lesson in leadership at every level, in every form, and in every context. So listen, please, to two verses, two psukim. So Moshe had run away. He meets the daughters of Midian. I'm sorry, of, of Yisro, the priest of Midian. He ends up marrying one of them. Moshe became the shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep. Yisro's sheep. Moshe became the shepherd. And he took the sheep to pasture far away past the desert. And he came to the mountain of God in the area of Chorev. There Moshe saw a burning bush. And God called out to him from the midst of the bush, Vayomer, and God said, Moshe, Moshe, Vayomer, and Moshe answered, Hineni, here I am. Now, in this first verse, our rabbis find multiple qualities of leadership in Moshe which lead directly to the second verse of God selecting him as the leader of the Jewish people by showing him the burning bush and by giving him his message, his mission. What do we learn in the first verse? Well, a shepherd is one who is constantly aware of the needs of his flock and connected with their welfare, putting their needs ahead of his own. Moshe took his animals far away to pasture in order to be certain that his sheep would not graze on land that belonged to someone else, demonstrating for us an advanced sense of justice and fairness. And our rabbis supply one more crucial aspect of this backstory to Moshe being selected as our leader. Our rabbis in the Medrash tell us the story that as Moshe was shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, there was a sheep that ran away from the flock and Moshe was chasing it. And the faster the sheep ran, Moshe ran even faster to try to catch it and to return it to the flock because the sheep were supposed to stay with the flock. Finally, the sheep reached a source of water and exhausted, flung itself down to drink. At that moment, Moshe realized the sheep wasn't running away. The sheep was thirsty and needed water. And Moshe picked up this sheep 
and he spoke to this sheep and he said, I'm sorry for chasing you and causing you to run so fast ahead of me. Had I known you were thirsty, I would have carried you in my arms to this water. And that's the moment God appeared and said, Moshe, Moshe. And Moshe answered, Hineni, here I am. It's a beautiful vignette of Moshe caring for and showing tenderness to his flock, which demonstrates that he is qualified to lead God's precious children from Egypt to Israel. But it's also something much deeper. Something much deeper that God sees in Moshe and is absolutely a prerequisite for the kind of leader God is looking for to lead his people. Because if a sheep is thirsty, it means the shepherd is not doing his job. Moshe sees one of his flock not behaving as it should. Initially, Moshe thinks the sheep is wrong to run away, and Moshe runs after it. But what Moshe realizes is that if the sheep is not doing what Moshe wants, it's not the fault of the sheep. It's his fault for not anticipating the sheep's need. Every leader every type of leader, at every level of leadership, in every context, needs to develop within themselves the humility to at least consider, if my flock misbehaves, perhaps the fault is not within them, but within me. Every leader needs the humility to recognize his or her share in the shortcoming of the flock. And it is at the moment Moshe realizes this and starts on the path that will eventually lead him to be called by God the most humble of men. At that moment, God calls out to Moshe from the burning bush and selects Moshe as the leader, the worthy shepherd of the Jewish people. Allow me to add one final piece, one final insight from two places in our Parsha. Our parsha begins with the words, Ve'ele Shemos B'nei Yisrael. And these are the names of the children of Israel. And the Torah tells us, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, the twelve sons of Yaakov, of Yisrael. But we just had a listing of their names. Not in last week's parsha, but the parsha before, Vayigash. The Torah told us all these names. So, 
If the Torah just gave us all of these names, why does the Torah repeat them here? Last week, I shared with you an answer from the Ramban Nachmanides, but Rashi gives a different answer. Rashi says, Even though God had counted them and mentioned their names earlier, God repeats the list and numbers and names them again in our parsha, Lahodia, in order to tell Chibasan how much he loves them, how much he cherishes them. Shenimshalu, as they are compared to Lakochavim, to the stars in the sky. Shemotzian umachnisan bemispar ubishmosam, that God takes out and allows to shine and mentions them each by name. It's a beautiful sentiment. But the Svas Emes, the great Hasidic master, asked the following question. Lahodia chibasan, in order to tell how much he cherishes, how much he loves each one of them, who is God telling? Lahodia to inform, to tell. Tell who? Who is God's audience for this? It's us. It's you and me. You. You are precious to God. You and me, every one of us, you are a star that God cherishes and appreciates by name repeatedly because of how much God admires and cherishes and loves you. Listen to this from another source, also in our Parsha. And this comes from Rabbi David Wolpe. So God introduces himself to Moshe and God gives Moshe his mission. Now Moshe, I want you to go to Paro and tell Paro to let the Jewish people go free and to come to serve me at Sinai. God speaks to Moshe. Moshe has the opportunity to respond. I don't know about you, but that certainly never happened to me. If I was given the opportunity to respond to something that God said directly to me? If I had the opportunity to ask God a question, what would my first question, what would your first question to God be? What's the secret of the world? What's going to happen in the future? What's the meaning of life? I, I don't know what I would say. But Moshe knew what he wanted to say. God introduces himself to Moshe. And now, Moshe, I'm going to send you to Paro on this mission. And Moshe said to God, this is the first question that Moshe asks God. Mi anochi? 
Ki elech el paro. Who am I to go to paro? His first question is about himself. Mi anochi. Who am I? And God answers him. Vayomer ki eye imach. God says to Moshe, I will be with you. So, on a simple level, what God is saying to Moshe is reassurance. I'm telling you to go to Paro. You're asking me, how am I going to be able to go to Paro? I am answering you, God says. I'm coming with you. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. But the deeper understanding of this conversation is that God's answer to Moshe's first question is about the nature of being a human being. Moshe's question is, Mianochi, who am I? And God says to Moshe, you know who you are? You are someone who can walk with God. I'm going to walk with me. I'm going to walk with you. You are someone who is worthy by the fact that you are a human being. You are worthy that I will walk with you. God wants to ensure that Moshe understands the majesty of what it means to be a human being, a person. Once we understand that, how important we are in God's eyes, how dear and cherished every single one of us is to God. Once we understand that, and only once we understand that, then the theme of Shamos, of Exodus, is introduced and the process of redemption has begun. Never forget you are a star God cherishes and accompanies through your life. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a wonderful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.